Okay, this morning is April 13th. It's 2008, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is called Chaff. Chaff, as in wheat and chaff. I asked you uh, right before the message to turn to Daniel 2, and I introduced some of these concepts to you Wednesday. Uh, I'll try not to go back and lay that foundation too deeply, but we, we started talking about man's dominion on the earth and God establishing a kingdom through men who ruled as his representatives. Well, today I want to pick up <clears throat> in Daniel 2 with a dream that the king of Babylon had. This is a, a profound thing that occurs. We're going to be in Daniel 2, and we'll start in the 10th verse. And although our title is Chaff, our topic really has to do with the kingdom of God. Are you all interested in that at all? In Daniel 2, starting in verse uh, 10, is where we'll begin to read. But uh, right before I pick up in Daniel 2, verse 10, I want to draw your attention to a place in the bulletin called the Pastor's Corner. There are a couple of scriptures in the Pastor's Corner, followed by a paragraph. This is some of what I hope that you will glean this morning. Uh, I obviously can't list every scripture that occurs in the Bible that relates to the kingdom, or there wouldn't be room. But I think you'll see there in print 117 times in the Synoptic Gospels alone, the kingdom is spoken of. And uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the very first book of the New Testament, 54 separate times the kingdom is spoken about. That's an awful lot if you think about the size of that volume. You know, in three books, 117 times, in one book, 54 times alone, you'll find out it's the very first words Jesus ever used when he began to preach. And yet it's largely misunderstood. Uh, as we understand how the kingdom moves and operates, what we're waiting for versus what we should expect and see now, as we begin to explore that topic, we may find out that we're a little bit like passengers that were on a cruise and didn't know the food was already paid for. You know, they'd been rationing their supplies, hiding in their cabins, and they had no idea that the upper decks were covered with banqueting materials and that they had already paid for it and didn't know it. There is an awful lot that is available to us that we pray and ask for. We, we're waiting for as if it's not here. And Jesus clearly demonstrated it more than 2,000 years ago, and the kingdom is said to be progressive. It's, it's growing in our midst. And 2,000 years ago, we saw things that we now act like we have to wait for. So my goal in teaching this is to bring a deeper understanding, but more than that, to bring a boldness in our actions. Can you say amen there? Amen. All right. So in Daniel 2, what has occurred before we pick up in the 10th verse is a king has had a dream. And in his uh, audaciousness, if you will, he not only wants his magicians and his astrologers to interpret the dream, they, he wants them to discern or divine what the dream was. He's not even going to tell them. Uh, how many people do you know could pass that test who aren't spirit-filled? Not very many, and so you can imagine the astrologers are a little upset by it. So starting in the 10th verse, it says, The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Sounds like they're a little outdone with their monarchs, doesn't it? What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. 
How interesting is that? These lost men rightly put their finger on a problem. They said, you're asking for something that requires divine power. You're asking for something it's actually only the gods doing, and they don't seem to dwell down here with us, king. See, what you need is you need a God dwelling in your midst to be able to solve the kind of problem that you have. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Especially since we find out, you heard me teach about Wednesday night, that when God began to establish the nation of Israel, He promised to dwell among them. We'll come back to that. But they rightly put their finger on a problem. God does not dwell with them. So the king becomes furious. He says, look, now I know for sure that you're trying to buy time. You know, you quit stalling. You've been on the royal payroll a long time, never produced much of anything. So I'm going to cut you into little pieces and burn down your houses. Uh, Isn't it neat how the lost deal with one another? You thought your boss was harsh, huh? Next time somebody leaves a counseling meeting with me and talks about how harsh I am, I'm going to refer them back to to Daniel. By this standard, we all look good. Pick up in the 26th verse. The king issues a decree, wants everybody to uh, kill the wise men. Or he's told everybody he's going to kill the wise men. And Daniel has a compassionate heart. And as he begins to find out about this, he says, wait, wait a minute. Let's pick up with his thoughts. It'll be uh, 26th verse. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. That's probably not what the king was expecting to hear, huh? You know, in fact, the king might be experiencing what some people would call data denial at this point. Everyone around him was telling him it cannot be done, and yet he's still insistent that it be done at the cost of these people's lives. But that wasn't the end of what Daniel had to say. Thank God for this three-letter word in the Bible. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Could you put yourself in this young man's position for a moment? In the palace of a foreign monarch? A foreign monarch who not only does not reverence God, but whose ways are distinctly contrary to God. Babylon is in present-day Iraq now. That's, that's how you correlate it on a map. And the first thing that happens to these Jewish exiles when they come there is they're supposed to eat foods they're not allowed to eat and worship gods they're not allowed to worship. Do you remember what was different about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They asked to remain distinct while living there. They said, look, look, please don't ask us to defile ourselves in these ways. Uh, If you give us a chance, we'll be just as vibrant. We'll honor uh, your king and all the ways through our service. Just don't ask us to defile ourselves. He maintained this standard and that made him different. You might say that he was put among darkness so that he would shine like the brightness of a star in the heavens. You might say that he was like a lamp who was put on a hilltop so that everybody could enjoy his life. In Daniel's life, we see an awful lot of parallels to Christians. We're hanging out in a world that wants to defile us. And yet there's something distinctly different about us if we choose not to be corrupted by its influences. As you were laying there, O king... 
your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Can you imagine presuming to prophesy not only what somebody's dream meant, but what the dream was? And what is the cost? What's on the line here? Daniel's life. And how many others' lives? Well, his friend, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and any other person that fell into a Babylonian category called magician or magi or astrologer. How about that? Do you think maybe he needed to be sure of what he had to say here? Where does that kind of surety come from? How much time do we really spend before our king getting his ear on a subject? It is so easy to do what just seems right to us, huh? And sometimes that's all there is to do. Sometimes heaven is silent. But how long do we give him the answer? Moments? The span of a TV commercial? How long do we give him the answer before we take matters into our own hands? Daniel, when he heard about all of this, I left this part out fell on his face and got his friends and said, we need to seek God. And they did. And we don't know how long it was. You know? Can you imagine that every second passed by while he was praying, he was thinking they could kill everybody any minute? Because the decree had already been issued. And yet he waited for the God of heaven to answer. A little caveat that might be worth thinking about. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest, and arms silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now, if you're going to suppose what somebody dreamed about, would this be anywhere in the panorama? Now, as I began to see in my mind things that Michelle may have dreamed about, chocolate cakes, nice vegetables, Little girls dancing in ballet or gymnasts or something may have crossed there. But how about a giant statue made of every kind of part of metal and with the weirdest feet described in human history? I thought some of my relatives had bad feet. This statue has got uh, some serious problems, huh? Its feet are made of iron and clay. Can you imagine the boldness that it took to do this? While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that the statue, the, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What a bizarre dream. And Daniel's going to interpret it here for a minute. But do you remember that the magician said that there was a problem? God doesn't dwell with men? And now at the climax of this beautiful description of this statue, we find out that a rock's cut out of a mountain and that it falls upon these feet, crushes the whole statue, and the statue becomes like chaff that is driven by the wind. That's a pretty powerful mental image. That might stick with you for a while. That's right up there with the Pharaoh that had the dream about the... Fat cows and the skinny cows, and skinny cows eating fat cows. I mean, this is not your everyday run-of-the-mill, I ate some bad pizza and watched a science fiction movie and had weird dreams. This is kind of uh, insane stuff. And when God chose to give it to him, Daniel said it was 
for a reason. He wants to reveal mysteries. In fact, Daniel keeps calling him the revealer of mysteries. How interesting is that? Pick up in the 36th verse. I hate to read to you this much, but I want to make sure that you catch these things. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. I bet he liked that part. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Where did Nebuchadnezzar's dominion come from? God. This is the basis for a scripture like Romans 13 that says, There is no authority except that which God has ordained. You say, but wait, they're wicked. That's okay. That's okay. God has ordained that certain kingdoms, certain nations would exist and fulfill their purposes. I don't particularly like that there is one motorcycle policeman in Sugar Land that seems to find me more than all the rest. That's not something that just excites me. And he happens to like to dine at all the same places I do. So I run into him constantly. His name's Brad. Except I call him officer and sir. And any other thing that I can think of to show that I understand he is in a position of authority because he seems bent on letting me know that. All authority is God-ordained. Now, does that mean that all authority acts in a godly way? Not at all. But this is why Jesus can look at Pilate and go, hmm. You don't have any authority my daddy didn't give you. And be per perfectly content in that. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. It sounds as if Nebuchadnezzar's given the whole world, doesn't it? It does, much like Adam was given the whole world. We find out that God entrusts dominion and rulership to men, and he calls it a kingdom. But when they don't do with it what God does, we could scarcely call it the kingdom of God. We call it kingdom of men. And we name them based on geographic regions. But God has invested in mankind the ability to rule. He has given us a position of authority over all the creation and then instructed us how to rule. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. But he's liking that too. Next, a third kingdom, uh, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet were toes partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. You ever got a prophecy that was, maybe you're a newlywed. Jennifer and I were newlyweds maybe a couple months, and people kept prophesying, I see children in your future. And I was thinking, wow, Nostradamus in our midst. Thank you. We're 18. We're married. I bet they'll be born naked, too. Yeah. yeah. And there's a 50% chance to be a boy. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And they meant well. Sometimes people prophesy out of their own imagination. Other times, it's as if they stretched into the heavens and heard God's voice. Something in you leaps and knows the difference, too. We don't treat prophecy with contempt. <clears throat> That's not the point that I'm trying to make. To be this detailed, do you think Daniel had to hear from God? 
He's actually several times given the same kind of vision interpretation in this book. And he even given, gives the directions that armies advance from. Sometimes he names their national monikers. I mean, it, it is amazing the man heard from God. Did you hear there would be four kingdoms? Y'all got that? Listen to this word. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, which kings do you think we're talking about? Well, we could argue all day long about that, and theologians do. We could say, huh, he's talking about all four kingdoms, in the time of all four kingdoms. We could say, no, he's talking about the kings involved in the fourth kingdom. But bottom line is, at some point in those four kingdoms, whether it's during the first, second, third, or fourth, at some point we're talking about now. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. Now, in context, I believe that it's been being set up during all four earthly kingdoms we're hearing about. I think that makes the most sense. But what this word is teaching is that during the reign of men upon the earth, Gentile men, men who are not necessarily doing the things that God wants them to do in their everyday life, God is setting up a different kind of kingdom. One that does not have successors. One that is never destroyed. And did you hear that last little bit? said, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. God is setting up a kingdom that will crush all others and bring them to an end. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. What an amazing thing. Can you imagine that you're reading this Scripture every day? You're hanging on to waiting for a day in which God's dominion, His kingdom, is set up upon the earth and puts down all other kingdoms so that God's rule is all in all. This is the hope of the Jewish nation. They saw it as coming in a messianic age. They called it a messianic age because they were as confused about it as we are the second coming of Jesus now. Some said one thing, some said another. Most of the time, honestly, just like I believe about eschatology today, they would suppose three or four things to Jesus. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the king, the son of David? And the answer is none of the above and all of the above. Have you ever tried to fit the kingdom of God into neat little theological categories? In fact, if you look around, we see them, right? There are people that I refer to as kingdom now that say, we are in the kingdom of God now in the fullness. The millennial reign is happening all around us. The thousand years that the Bible says is simply figurative. We've been in this in the uh, fullest presence of it since the beginning. And you see something like a holocaust, and you go, well, how could that be? There are others who fall into a more dispensational category that say, no, no, we wait for the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. It's at the end of this dispensation or age. Well, that seems to have some merit because we certainly see some ugliness around us. And yet both are completely inconsistent with what Jesus taught. He said, well, Eric, that insults an awful lot of people. I know it's probably why we don't have a bigger crowd. When we look at the number of times in the ways in which the kingdom is addressed in the Bible, it changes the way that we think about things. It will change the way that you embrace 
spiritual warfare. It will change the way that you view even the king of the kingdom. From these scriptures in Daniel, before we move to Matthew, and you can start turning, we're going to be in Matthew 3. We see that the people rightly laid their finger upon the concept that God does not dwell among men. At least that was during their time. Then secondly, we see that at some point the Gentile kingdoms of the world would become like chaff blown by the wind. And then thirdly, we see that when the kingdom of God would be set up, it would be during the time of the kings on earth and it would destroy all dominion and last forever. Y'all in Matthew 3 now? In Matthew 3, we're going to start in the first verse. Have I bored you to tears yet? No, but I'm well on my way. Keep going. Encourage me. (laughs) In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent and go to heaven. No? Somebody, my Bible doesn't have a mistake in it? No? Why is the sinner's prayer not listed here? Why did he not say, turn over your track and follow the three steps that I'm going to give you? This is not what John the Baptist was preaching. What was he preaching? He said, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. This has been difficult for us. And truthfully, I didn't understand why it was said this way. Because later you see Jesus say, it's come upon you. In Matthew 12, 28, he says, if I cast out demons by the devil, how do your guys cast them out? While they're thinking about it, he goes, and if I cast him out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. I said, well, which is it? Is it upon or near? The word near here in Greek has a Hebrew cognate, meaning that if a Hebrew person were thinking in his mind in Hebrew and then needed to choose a Greek word, the Greek word's represented here, and they both mean something. They don't mean near just as in this drum is near this symbol. It means near and overtaking. It means about to envelop you. It means that it is about to encompass you. They didn't go, oh, well, it's near like those two cars out there are near. He meant that it is at hand is another way to say it, and some of your translations do. The translations have thought about this because it's a subtle difference, and yet it has profound impact upon your understanding. Some say it's near because it's merely 2,000 years away. Really. Does that seem to fit the context? Speaking to people in their lifetime, the kingdom is upon you. It's at hand. It's near. It's about to envelop you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who spoke, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Do you remember the astrologers had a problem in Daniel? Say, hey, the kind of thing that you want, man, only God could do, and he doesn't dwell among us. Now there is somebody on the earth saying, hey, make straight paths because God is coming. The Lord is coming. This ought to be something that's revolutionary to the earth. We've always had earthly rulers. We've always had men with selfish interest reigning upon the earth always. God says, I don't want you to group together in one place. I want you to go multiply and replenish the earth, spread out all over it. What does man do? Builds a giant tower, guess where? In Babylon, plain of Shinar. And men began to make a name for themselves and it's never stopped. Have you noticed how many ministries start off 
pure and sweet and serving everyone and end up building a name for themselves that God has to knock down just like that tower? It happens all of the time, doesn't it? It's in our nature to be self-promoting. There is a time in which those kind of kingdoms comes to an end. In fact, what did we learn from Daniel? They become like chaff. Well, listen to this. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when people, I'm sorry, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not all uniquely bad people, but you know what they are? They're in the ruling class of Israel. Israel has no monarch, so who's making the decisions for Israel? A group of people called the Sanhedrin. They form a kingship of sorts over Israel. We simply refer to them as the Judean leadership, if you will. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think. You can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's always amazed me. There are churches that use this scripture for their youth groups, and they talk about wanting to be baptized in fire. We're a Greek-minded people that has placed an exactness upon interpretation. In fact, we called it exegesis. And we look at the meanings of scriptures and we diagram sentences. And if we could ever get it right, it would sure set us free. But not only are we technically precise, we're also wrong in our assertions. Listen to what is explained next. His winnowing fork is in his hand. What do you use a winnowing fork with? Anybody have a wild guess to winnow? Yeah, to, to separate. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up chaff with unquenchable fire. What kind of baptisms did he have earlier? With spirit and with fire? Sounds to me like a winnowing fork will separate two groups of people. Those who are renewed by his spirit and those who are judged by his fire. Fire is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. I'm not picking on anybody. The reason that I don't like that interpretation is manyfold, but one is, there's an obvious allusion to something here that happened in Daniel's dream. See, the kingdoms of the world are coming to nothing. They're coming to something that the Bible calls chaff. Now, the shocker to this Judean leadership is they thought of them as only Gentile kingdoms when, in fact, the Gentile kingdoms would rule the world, and that's what Daniel's talking about. But more specifically, God is addressing all kingdoms that have to do with men and their selfish desires. And they are coming to chaff nothing. There's an instrument that is going to be put upon the earth that will separate that which is renewed by God's rule from that which is completely uh, submerged in a fleshly rule. God Himself will use Jesus to separate it. 
and one will get burned and the other will continue to be refreshed. How powerful is that? The kingdom is near, he said. Prepare for God to dwell with us, he said. The Lord's on the way. He said, clear away the chaff. Now, have you ever wondered why the leadership didn't like Jesus very much? How would you like somebody to show up at a business you're the CEO of and say, huh, time for change. I think the problem's not so much the people as the leaders. In fact, it's the CEO. How do you think that that would make you feel? You'd either have to get really humble really fast and admit that the problem is with you and want to change and follow the new leadership and direction, or what happens? You get fired. Well, John the Baptist said the axe is at the root. The leadership of the kingdom of God was going to be taken away from the people who were doing it and given to another. How about that? Turn with me to Matthew 4. Ought not be hard, not, not far to turn, huh? In Matthew 4, all we have had happen thus far in Jesus' ministry, according to Matthew, all that has occurred is that Jesus has been baptized. This is a public proclamation where God shows He is pleased with this one. Then He goes to be tempted, tested. And He interacts with the devil by using the Word of God. His dominion, His authority, His rulership was not derived from His personality, from His abilities, from someone else's ordination of Him. It was derived from God's authority flowing through Him as expressed in the Word. In fact, He was called the Word. Now... What we have is a title in your Bible. Anybody want to tell me what the title says? Jesus begins to preach. Jesus begins to proclaim is what that is in Greek. Well, I wonder what he proclaimed. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way along the sea, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand near upon you, enveloping you. Well, what do you think the most obvious context to the people is? They're living in a land that in this region was dominated by Gentile rule most of its history. That's why it's called the land of the shadow of death. Their prophets have told them the Gentiles will rule for four kingdoms. And guess what? The kingdom that it started with was Babylon, then the Medo-Persian, then the Greek, and now the Romans are here and the Jews can count. So they're listening. They're going, there's been four kingdoms. At some point now, we're waiting for the kingdom of God to be set up. And now here is a Jewish prophet standing in a land that had been dominated by Gentiles saying, the kingdom is upon you. Do you think that might get your attention? Do you think that they were going, oh, well, obviously, Jesus is speaking about sometime thousands of years in the future and we need to wait for it. Would you draw that interpretation in any reasonable realm from the idea that the kingdom is near? Probably not, huh? Hmm. As Jesus calls His first disciples, watch this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. If you saw somebody saying, the rule of men is at an end. What is upon us is the dominion or rule of God. And then they began to demonstrate this good news by healing miracles. Do you think that you might consider that the kingdom of God was beginning to be set up on the earth? It sounds like it. Especially since in the book of Daniel it was said that it was during the time of these kings it would be set up. And yet all of Christianity that I'm largely familiar with, I'm sure all of you have it right, and all of the relatives that you have have it right, and all the churches that you've come from all have it right. But the Christians that I know see the kingdom of God is something that is not on the earth, not around the earth, not even near the earth. We are leaving this old stinking world behind and going to the kingdom of God that we call heaven. In fact, we've dropped the word kingdom and we just call it heaven. How interesting is that since that is not... In fact, do this for me. Take your Bibles, search furiously. You have a week. Come back and show me the sentence that says, Die and go to heaven. You, I, I'll give you this. You can look in any one of ten translations. i give you ten to go search. And come back and tell me the number of times that it says. Do you trust me at all? It's not there. It is not there. So, why do we all think that? Well, because if you die, you do go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible is about. It is not about us leaving earth and going to some place called heaven. It is about God's kingdom, His dominion, His authority, and His rule being established on the earth among men. Because the problem is, right now, we often don't feel as if God dwells among us. And all we see is the dominion of evil men all around us. In fact, it's been like this from the beginning. And I talked about this Wednesday night, and I don't want to rehash it too much, but the earth did not start as a ball of light shining with the glory of God and man just messed it up. It didn't start that way. It started covered in darkness and God interjected something to it and began renovating it. We were in the process of that when man messed up. So many times we're looking for the kingdom as something that is coming to us. The kingdom is not coming to us in some future event. It is coming to us now. And it starts small and indiscernible, kind of like a mustard seed. But it grows into something starting in our lives that will pervade everything. Oh, I don't know, like leaven. Do you recognize these parables at all? And when you scratch your head and say, but wait a minute, we don't see everything on the heaven and earth subject to Jesus yet. Why don't we see the kingdom set up like what the prophet said? There is not a lamb laying down with a lion. What's wrong if the kingdom's here? What's wrong? And the kingdom now, people say, oh, I don't know, because the kingdom's here. And I don't fall into that category. I want to tell you that now. The problem is there's more than one kingdom here. 
And the kingdom of God is in the business of putting down all other dominion and authority and raising up Jesus. And do you know where it starts? Anybody want to guess where it starts? Well, just point somewhere else. Anywhere but with me, right? It starts over. If Gabriel would just get this right, if Dave could get it right, then we wouldn't have any problems. The problem is if Dave's pointing at Patricia and Patricia's pointing at Darnell and Darnell says it's Cassidy. It has to start with us. That's why he says the kingdom is not here or there. It's within you. When we begin to recognize God's rule, the kingdom of God has extended from heaven right into your life. And as you act according to that rule, it's extending into others' lives. And this grows upon the earth. Kingdom actually rises against kingdom. He begins to preach the good news that the kingdom's obtainable now. It may look like there's a Roman oppressor upon you, but you can actually live under God's rule. Then he starts to teach them how. The problem is everybody classifies Jesus' message as warm and loving and such a good man. And that's not how the Bible classifies it because it's not easy like that. Warm and loving. Can't we all just get along? Doesn't that sound easy? It almost sounds like being a pacifist, doesn't it? In fact, let's all put on funny colors and go hide in churches. Let's do that. Huh? Look at Luke 16:16. 16, 16. Keep your finger in Matthew because we're coming right back here. Luke 16:16. 16, 16. Do you remember preached and proclaimed same word? Preach, proclaim, same words. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets make up a book called the Tanakh. Nobody ever called it the Old Testament until a bunch of cracker Gentiles got hold of it and then we called it old. Okay? Jews don't see it as old. They see it as living. The law and the prophets, Tanakh, were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, proclaimed, and everyone is forcing his way into it. How do you force your way into something that's pacifist by nature? You can't. You can't. The, the idea that has been portrayed of believe, and by the way, religion's a private matter. Believe. Keep it a secret all of your life, and one day you die and go to heaven. That has defined generations of American Christians. Well, at a Billy Graham crusade, one day I walked that aisle. Good for you. Proud. That was a great start. What happened day two? or day three, or year four or five. Because the Bible speaks of a narrow way that is a kingdom that you must force your way into. You say, well, I'm not very forceful. Learn. Learn. So, well, I don't, I don't feel very strong and vigorous. So it doesn't require you to work. It's not by your effort. That's not it. It requires you to be forceful in putting down your own dominion and taking up God's. How forceful is it to yield? Huh? How forceful is it to yield? What a paradox that is. Well, in theory, yielding is very easy, isn't it? You just yield. How hard have you found it to yield when the guy is bottlenecking with you? Right? How easy is it for you to say, Oh, no, no, brother, after you. You cut in front of everyone back there just after you. What do you do? You look the other way and pull up a little bit, right? <laughs> I will not yield! You look the other way and pull up a little bit. 
Right? It can be the hardest thing in the world to yield. The kingdom of God advances in our own lives when there is a bottleneck between God's will and your will and you do something. Force yourself to yield. Jesus was the most forceful human being that the planet has ever known far and away. And I'm not speaking about some future coming. I'm talking about the gentle lamb that everybody talks about in the first coming. Do you know how we know that? Every time he wanted to go to sleep and yet the father said go to work, he did. Every time he wanted to eat, yet the father said go to work, he did. Every time he wanted to say something the father didn't want him to say, he didn't. And every time the father said speak, he spoke. That is forceful. Forceful with who first, though? Himself. So it's easy. He had no sinful nature. You may not be sinning when you have dysentery. That may not be sin. But the flesh sure has a strong voice, huh? You take command over your body and say, I will not diarrhea. Y'all try that. Let me know how it works for you. Jesus didn't have to have a sinful nature to have a voice in his flesh. After 40 days, it says he was hungry. That's not a product of sin. That is the flesh crying out. Have you ever had the flesh cry out for sleep? Yeah. In fact, it's somebody brought to my attention recently, and I knew it, but chose not to emphasize it. This sleep is spoken of as a benefit from God in the Bible. Psalm 127 says He grants sleep to those He loves. It's something we need. His body cried out for things just like we did. But He was forceful, and He did what God said regardless of the cost. The kingdom starts with us. Uh, in Matthew, let's go to Beatitudes. How about that? That'll kind of drive this home, I think. Everybody studied the Beatitudes? Right? How many of Beatitudes are there? Are there five? It's in Matthew 5. That was good. How many Beatitudes are there? Eight. There are eight Beatitudes, right? What's the most important thing about the Beatitudes? There are eight of them. That's, that's what's important, right? Conjugating Greek verbs. That's the most important thing about the Beatitudes, isn't it? Where they were said. That's got to be the most important. I've stood where they were said. So surely that's the most important. What's the most important thing about the Beatitudes? That we be these attitudes. Jesus came and He said, Hey, look, guys. We need to touch you above. You've got to turn. Because the kingdom is enveloping you and you're headed the wrong way. And then as He got them to turn and start to follow Him... He began to teach them how they should be, how they should act, what they should look like. And listen to what he says. Matthew 5, starting in 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, his Talmudim, came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the celestial body and the heavenly sky with the pearly gates and Peter sitting at them. The only sense that these guys understood kingdom at all was as an earthly reign. We've misunderstood the English term kingdom of heaven to mean a kingdom in heaven instead of a kingdom of heaven. You understand? I run into people all over the place that I can see the influence of Lafayette on them. But we are most certainly not in Lafayette, Louisiana right now. All over Texas, I find the influence of Louisiana. Every time I go into certain restaurants, I see it. Establishments where they serve things besides Kool-Aid and sometimes you get to watch ball games. I've noticed it. 
but we're not in Louisiana. That's an influence from Louisiana, but it's not residing in Louisiana. It's migrated. It set itself up here. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is being established during the time of kings where those kings are on the earth. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to say something is theirs? I tell you, my little girl will let you know right away. Sippy cups, mine! Mine! So give it here, baby. Ah! She ain't going to give it up. Not going to give it up. Watching her face down her older brothers is a funny thing. She'll hold it and say, no! Mine! Right? She's all of about 40 pounds. Judah's about 90 pounds now. That does not bother her at all. Poor in spirit. How is the poor in spirit? How do they have, possess, mine, the kingdom of God? Because in some ways, their lives are showing His dominion, His rule. Look at Psalm 34. Keep your finger here because we're coming back constantly. Psalm 34, 18th verse. The Lord... Let's start in the 17th verse. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit and theirs is the kingdom? When you are brokenhearted crushed in your spirit at the wickedness that you see around you and how difficult it is to stand for God but you're trying it's okay because you're experiencing the kingdom of heaven God's rule is in your life he didn't tell you that you could fix everything he told you to be obedient to him he didn't say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven he didn't say oh if you're poor in spirit that's good because at some eschatological age in the future as a parasusia you will get the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he said. He used a possessive pronoun. It's theirs. The only way they could have understood that was here and now. So why didn't they just fly away, I wonder? Or turn into little cherubs, you know? They could do the chicken dance together with their new wings. Because all of that garbage floated in the church much later. Much, much later. The Jewish understanding was that God's dominion would be set up now. Now, like every other person, they did not understand the progression any more than we understand the progression today. We waited for it at once. Twinkling of an eye. It's not what it says. Your body will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It won't be a metamorphosis. It doesn't say the kingdom happens in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. No, at the last trumpet events happen. But that's not the kingdom. The kingdom has been going on since it was taught and people began to obey it. Because you know how you define a kingdom? It's not by ethnic group. You can have more than one ethnic group under a king's rule, can't you? A kingdom is defined by people living under the dominion or rulership of a king. And those who were crushed in spirit were recognizing God's dominion, His rulership. In what way does a crushed spirit show you recognize God's dominion? I had the hardest time with that because my spirit's not particularly crushed. You know why? Because they had no will of their own left that they were fighting with. Their spirit was broken and said, Okay, Lord, whatever you want. Now, you've been there, hadn't you? That's why you're here now. And if you've never been there, 
If you love God, He'll get you there. You will always learn what it is to be broken and contrite. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn over evil, because they'll be comforted. Blessed are the, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Why not inherit heaven? Because that's nowhere in the frame of reference of these people. That concept did not even appear in church literature until after the year 200. And the people that made it famous, as much as I'd like to blame it on my Catholic friends, are the Protestant reformers. Martin Luther once described heaven as a place with lollipops and carousels. Now, I love all that Luther did for us, but that couldn't be more blatantly wrong. Even when you look at the material descriptions of a city coming down from heaven, it doesn't take much examination to find out that we're talking about something that uh, is an analogy in nature. Look at its components. Look at whose names are on foundations and gates and who the capstone is. You'll figure it out. In fact, it's both called a bride and a city. It's hard to be both, isn't it? Must be an analogy. When he says, blessed are the meek, did you hear blessed are the weak? Hmm? Y'all can talk to me. It's okay. Psalm 37 explains this. But the meek, this 37.10, let's start in 37.10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. A psalm that he's referring to in his beatitude taught them the reign of wickedness was coming to an end, but the meek, those who had submitted, meek means submitted to God, would inherit the earth. Now, where could Jesus have gotten an idea like that? Well, he obviously read our bulletin because our bulletin lists two separate scriptures that say it but it didn't originate with our bulletin. It originated with the holy Word of God and Jesus was made of it. He was flowing in it. They were waiting for a time in which God's dominion and rule enveloped the earth, the whole earth. Now, as much as the kingdom started with this preaching and people's obedience, it has not ended. What is the surest way to know we're not living in the fullness of the kingdom now, as some men would say? There's wickedness all around us. Must be more than one kingdom here. Hmm. Let's finish our Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, which was one of the cries. Remember, God doesn't dwell among men. Well, He does if you're pure-hearted. Blessed are the peacemakers, not peace receivers, not peace agreeers, peacemakers. This idea comes from Psalm 34, 14. It says to seek peace, to pursue it. The idea is that it, it, it makes intense effort. Peace tries to evade us because our natural authority and our dominion is inclined towards evil. And so when you get two men, two women together, and they both have a natural inclination towards evil, peace is something that eludes us. So the answer is to not get together, right? No. The answer is to make peace between you. Peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it means everything is in its right order with God and man. So how do you make things right with you and your fellow man? 
what Jesus taught you. He taught you how to live in the kingdom. You esteem his needs as higher than yours. And now you have made shalom between you. What's there left to fight about? But that requires some trust in a kingdom that maybe you don't see everywhere, doesn't it? Is there something that cries out in your flesh, but my needs won't be met? Well, that's not living in the kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I couldn't emphasize this enough. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that seem to imply that they possess the kingdom of heaven now? Well, how do you know it? Because the people of the other kingdom hate them. See, if they were in the same kingdom, there would be no animosity. But because there's more than one kingdom warring on the earth, there is warfare between the two. This is how the epistles can say, friendship with the world is warfare towards God. Enmity towards God. There is more than one kingdom on the earth and we get to choose which we will live in and they are both trying to advance. It takes force to enter into and stay in, remain in the kingdom of God. And since the early days, it's been on the move too. God is on the move and His kingdom is on the move. This is why the Hebrews woke up every day to look to see where the cloud was. Because God's dominion is ranging throughout the earth. Hmm. (coughs) Turn with me to Matthew 13. Let's talk about process because that will help us. won't do me any good if you understand the concept and we don't apply it. So let's talk about the process, how this starts in us. In Matthew 13, probably the most famous thing is the parable of the soils or the sower. Some of the more overlooked parables, just because they're short, are these. It may also not just be because they're short. How many of you hold patience up there as your highest virtue? In fact, if you're the most patient person, I mean, if that's the strongest virtue you have, would you raise your hand? That's not one that many of us say that we have, huh? Because our lives demonstrate to us that the single biggest area any of us could probably grow in is our patience. And yet God seems to abound in it. He'll say, this nation right here, the little one, the one nobody likes, I'm going to make them the chief. Then let them cease to be a nation for 1,800 and some odd years and it doesn't seem to bother him a bit. Then in a single day he goes, okay, it's time, let's start again. And we're like, but centuries passed. I mean, do you get that? Our life's a breath and that was centuries. And he goes, trust me. He doesn't have a problem with patience. Maybe we've overlooked these because it requires some, what does Revelation say? Patient endurance on the part of the saints. All right, in uh, Matthew 13, starting in 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven. It'd be a whole lot easier if he just said the kingdom in heaven, huh? Because it would have fit with our theology so much better. I mean, then we could all leave this old stinking world behind and just go to some celestial party in the sky. That's kind of like country music theology, isn't it? Prop me up out of the jukebox when I die. Isn't it a little bit? But it's so familiar to us, it doesn't even seem wrong. If you were speaking with the followers of Jesus in the first two centuries, and we talked about the kingdom of heaven in the way that we're comfortable doing it, as an unseen, faraway thing, they would look at you like you were insane. Now, if you went to Greek philosophers and talked to them about an unclean temporal world but a holy celestial world, you'd be right at home. They didn't have a problem with that at all. So I wonder where the influence came from. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed 
which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. And the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. If you don't get it the first time, it's okay. He has another parable. Watch this. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So he's obviously saying that we don't see the kingdom right now, but one day, bam, it'll show up like a new car in your driveway. No, probably not, huh? In fact, it's something small and obscure. Something that you might not notice. But when watered and paid a little attention to, it will grow into something that benefits everybody around you. Is maybe that what he's trying to teach about the kingdom? Everybody misunderstands the kingdom and it didn't didn't start in our day. Jesus said, "Mm, you're right, I'm a king. But my kingdom's not of this world, meaning that it's not designed like this world or else my followers would fight just like yours did. But my kingdom is designed after the pattern in heaven and we don't have to fight. It's all ours anyway. Take my life from me. I'll take it back up. Resist me. I'll step on you. In the end, you will all submit to the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's without question. So there was no need to strive, to jockey for position, no posturing between him and Pilate. It didn't have to. Jesus knew from the Scriptures, if not from divine revelation, Pilate's rule was limited, while God's rule was not limited. Ultimately, what are all the kingdoms of men coming to? Chaff. And Jesus is the instrument that separates it. Those that get brought into His barn are part of His kingdom, and they're refreshed and renewed by His Holy Spirit. Those that don't get brought into His barn, His folds, Shem's tent, whatever you want to think about, Noah's ark, they are burned with unquenchable fire. Hmm. He goes on to explain a parable of the weeds. And then look what happens right after that. Look at the 44th verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Does this sound like a treasure that is so big that you can see it from the interstate? It doesn't, does it? Sounds like something that you could find that nobody else knew was there. You could hide, go give away everything you had to come back and get it because it was precious to you if nobody else. In fact, he tells another one like that. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The idea here is that it starts small, it's obscure. You might even miss it, except that you have the right heart and God's drawing by His Spirit to call your attention to it. But now that you've found it, even though it's obscured everybody else and easily missed, to you it's the most valuable thing that there has ever been and you would give all for it because you found what it is to live in the dominion of God. You found out what it is to live in the kingdom of heaven. Is it any, any coincidence, you think, that Satan has tricked the largest part of the world's population into thinking that the kingdom of heaven is something that could be advanced by a sword, shouting Allah Akbar and cutting off heads? They call it the kingdom. And they call themselves people who submit to the kingdom. Muslim means one who submits. 
That couldn't just be a counterfeit, huh? And Christians, we don't understand what we're receiving, so we don't understand even why that's a counterfeit. The easy out. They're just a bunch of crazy foreigners. I wonder how long God will let us keep that understanding because it kind of brings it to home when you watch the news every day, doesn't it? Maybe we better understand what it is we're receiving. Say, so, well, how do I interact with people that are of a different kingdom? I don't know. How the Good Samaritan interact with the injured guy? We apply kingdom principles. Kingdom's going to clash against kingdom from now and forevermore. There's no question God's kingdom's going to prevail. The question is, which one are you in? And how do you know? Well, which one's principles are displayed in your life? What kind of fruit does your tree bear? These slow growth parables are not something that was new. There's a rabbi called Kaya Bar Abba. What a great name, huh? Hi, this is my kid, Kaya Bar Abba. Doesn't roll off my tongue either. In fact, we change all of these names. You know, We don't say Kafir Nahum. It's too hard for us. We say Capernaum. We don't say Yeshua. We say Jesus. Right? We just Americanize them. That's okay. What he taught was important. He said that the Torah had an inner force to it. And people, I'm sure, looked at him crazy, but this is before the days of Yoda. So, he says the Torah has an inner force to it. And even if God's people leave him completely but continue to read the Torah, it's okay because given enough time, the inner force of the Torah will bring them back to him. See, that's not a new thought. We've hung on to that for a long time. We say it about our kids, right? Jesus takes that very same kind of idea. He said it was the leaven of the Torah is what this rabbi said. And he applies it to the principle of the kingdom. What he's teaching is that if you can start to get part of God's rule in you, that it will work all the way through you like leaven works through a loaf of dough. We call that process sanctification. Except when we say sanctification, nobody knows what that means. If we stick with the words Jesus did, we understand how leaven works all the way through the dough. So when someone is sanctified, what are they? They're applying kingdom principles in newer and newer areas of their life continuously throughout their life or they're growing in the kingdom of God. Have you not seen very much kingdom of God in your life? If you haven't, then maybe we need to join with people that are serious about doing it. And the more we do that, the more you begin to see the kingdom of God. That will never wipe away the other one. It's still there. It still rears its head. But our job is to put it down. Turn with me to Matthew 24. I realize i got just a couple more minutes, but I want you to uh, be blessed in this next part that you hear. Y'all can hang on with me for a couple more minutes. In Matthew 24, 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That's the end of this age. There is an age in which some things are going to happen and he's going to say it. It will come to an end at some point. The four kingdoms that ruled the earth will come to an end at some point. And the way they come to an end is something cut out of a mountainside falls upon them and destroys them. Verse 7. Nation will rise against nation. That's ethne against ethne. People group against people group. And kingdom will rise against 
kingdom. The Bible teaches us that kingdoms clash. In fact, the apostles pick up on this terminology and they call one the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, and another a kingdom of darkness. Do those words sound familiar to you? Turn with me to Colossians. In Colossians 1, we've read this verse many, many times in here, so we'll just pick it up right in the middle of it. Verse 13. For He has rescued us from the dominion. What would be another word for dominion? If a dominion had a leader, what would you call him? A king. And a king's dominion is called a kingdom. For He has rescued us from the kingdom, dominion, of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. There are two kingdoms at work here. Trust me to Revelation. You'll be in Revelation 11. I'm going to quit running you to death here. In fact, I've got two more places for you to turn. In Revelation 11, listen how the angels put it. 15th verse. The seventh trumpet sounded. His trump- I'm sorry. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign it forever and ever. Could that get any clearer, really? The kingdom of the world has become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and He will reign, rule it and reign in it forever and ever. So how do we get a concept that in some way we are going somewhere else? I'm not teaching even about the stages of a second kind. I'm not trying to argue with anyone. I'm saying that the focus of the kingdom of God is one that is coming this way, not one that is leaving the earth. It's one that's coming to the earth. The world, in fact, gets transformed in called new. Keep your finger in Revelation because that's where our last scripture will be, but I'm going to squeeze in one in Hebrews that I refer to all the time but don't read to you enough. It's Hebrews 2. Keep your finger in Revelation. Don't give up on me now. We're two scriptures from the end. start doing my preacher uh, personalities for you. Y'all are not with me! Alright, you ready? Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 starting uh, with the word uh, right after verse 8. In putting everything under Him, the Him here is Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at the present we do not see everything subject to Him, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see the kingdom of God pervading every area of the globe. We don't see that. But we see that Jesus has walked in it in its absolute fullest sense, and we are called to be like him. It is a process like leaven working through the whole loaf. Is kingdom now right? Is the process done? No. Are the dispensationalists that say the kingdom is a future event right? No. We are in the kingdom now and it is growing continually. The problem is there's more than one kingdom here. But in the end, turn to Revelation 21. The end culminating at His coming, at the end of the age of the Gentile rulers, at the end of all of those other kingdoms that are becoming like chaff, what stands is this. 
Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Before you get all excited about them passing away and thinking of something that is completely new, one gone, one now here, he explains this, the old order has passed away. You'll hear him say it here in a few minutes. These things become new in the same way that you become new. Unfortunately, when I became new and am still becoming new, I did not get better looking. Unfortunately, I was not 6'5". I didn't have perfectly chiseled abs. All those things Patricia's looking for in a man. I didn't get those. What God called me new was that the old order, old dominion in Eric's life was passing away and I was receiving a new one. The earth and the heavens are the same way. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Funny, he calls it a city than a bride, huh? And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. See, what is happening is Jesus began to speak the Word of God. And He started with the people who had been specially prepared to receive it. And then sent them out to the ends of the earth to bring it. So that everyone that heard the King's commands, got His invitation, His edict, could become obedient to it. And as that happened, the kingdom of God that started as a ripple in a pond was now growing into a wave growing into something that was much, much larger. Say, so, well, then why don't we see so much more holiness on the earth? Well, sometimes we do. There are more Christians on the planet today than have lived in all the prior centuries combined. See, the problem is, is the other kingdom has grown too. And you know what? Daniel 12 said that. He said there would be an increase in wickedness. The kingdoms grow together, kind of like weeds and wheat. But in the end of days, God will have completely crushed the kingdom of the world and all that will remain is the kingdom of His saints. So how do you want to be found? you want to be found in the weeds or in the wheat? We know what happens with chaff that gets burned. Useless material. It looked like wheat and wasn't. It looked like a sheep, but in fact was a goat. We want to be found in the kingdom. And how do you put yourself in the kingdom? Through church membership, right? through applying the king's principles and showing him he has dominion in your life. And what will happen is the kingdom is expanding upon the earth and will eventually put absolutely everything under Jesus at his return. Now, the other kingdom's growing too. It's, read Daniel 7. <laughs> read what happens. The holy people's power is almost completely broken when their king returns and says, uh, the gates of hell will not overcome the kingdom I'm setting up. It's not going to happen. And the court sets, the books are open, and the people are judged. See, we have a choice whether to live in the dominion of darkness or the dominion of light. Thinking of it as a future event, what's wrong with that? Well, it means you don't have to do anything until it gets here. Thinking of it as a far-off place, what's wrong with that? Well, it means you don't do anything until you get there. The kingdom of God is what you do around you every day. And I'll tell you a secret. 
You can make your brother's life like heaven or you can make it like hell all by your actions. Go read that parable of the Lazarus and the rich man. You tell me. When we sow dissension into our friendship, when we sow sin and bad things into people's lives, we make their lives like hell. We're extending that kingdom to them, a kingdom of darkness. When we love them, when we serve them, when we act like God would act to them, we're extending the kingdom of heaven. So you want to advance the kingdom of God? Go be those attitudes to your fellow man. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. He'll give you so much of it, you'll be like the state highway crew for God. You know, Building roads where nobody else would go. Amen. Y'all stand to your feet.